Welcome to episode 178 of Redboard Rewind. My name is Spencer Luganbeal, and today we're going to go with a more tournament-style Redboard Rewind. And for that, I can only think of one person to have on, and that's Mike Samich of The Racing Dudes. Me and Mike go over the end game of his big two-day tournament from this past weekend, and the races we're covering are 7, 8, and 9 from Santa Anita. And some angles that we talk about are... Mike's thoughts in an endgame where he's in the top five playing for a big cash prize. And also some of the prep that Mike goes through getting ready for a big tournament like this. And also why tournaments can make you a better handicapper. This is Redboard Rewind. Welcome in my special guest for this week's Redboard Rewind. We're going to have somewhat of a tournament-style podcast, and that can only mean one person that I had to have on, and that's Mike Samich of The Racing Dudes. Mike, how are you? I'm doing great, Spencer. Uh, it's been a fun weekend, uh, looking forward and dreading this all at the same time. <laughs> it's it's always good when I message you, because you're, you're first of all, you get back to me very promptly, which I which I love, but I, I go, would you like to come on the pod? And you go, well, this is where I'm at right now. I'll let you know in about an hour and a half. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> and then I didn't realize what tournament was until later on that night. And I, then I realized what had happened. And I said, oh. And I, I was almost going to respond, do you still want to do said podcast? <laughs> like, I could not believe just how – what a tournament, first of all. Great job for, on your side. But, I mean, man, oh, man. Brutal. Yeah, I, I appreciate it. Yeah, it's, it's – um. I want more people to play tournaments, so I love talking about this stuff. I think it's a great way to not only improve your handicap, but able to give you a shot at making big numbers without having to be right every single race. I mean, pick fives, pick sixes are a blast to play. You can you can make exponential money off a small wager, but you have to nail five races in a row, mm-hmm. and that makes it really tough. And these tournaments, you know, this was a, a tournament that was basically 40 races, right? Every, every race at Santa Anita, every race at Gulfstream, both Saturday and Sunday, you can be wrong more than you're right, mm-hmm. and you can still walk away with a, with a you know life changing money for some people. So, to me, this is a a really great way to try and take a big shot, and it's really interesting just from a strategy perspective. We're going to talk a lot about the end game here. Talk about the last three races from Santa Anita and, and kind of where I was sitting in the thought process. Um, but it, it's just it's a phenomenal way to play a full card at a specific racetrack for you know sub twenty or thirty bucks and have a chance at, at making monster numbers back. So. We'll start off with a few questions here. My first question, obviously, it's so many races, as you said, but it's Gulfstream, Santa Anita. I would imagine that you're more comfortable at Santa Anita than you would be at Gulfstream. Is that correct? I'm actually a Gulfstream DJ. I, I love Gulfstream okay. Park. Um, I love the fact that you have three surfaces there. Uh, I feel like it gives me an advantage for someone that, that plays the track every day and looks at the track every day. So I have a, a pretty good feel for the synthetic, which I think a lot of people kind of struggle with. Uh, I also know the ins and outs there. And I, I like playing Gulfstream because... I know the trainers well. I know the connections well. So I have a pretty good idea of, you know, the intention a lot of times of why they're putting horses in specific spots when trainers are just getting a race into a horse and when I think they're going to fire right off the bench. Santa Anita to me is a little tough. I, I used to love playing it, but there's field size issues there. And, and for someone who likes playing multi-race bets, you know, when you have these six horse fields and you got four to five shots, it, it's tough to play in those sequences because you really have to either take a stand against or you're playing a $5 ticket, $10 ticket with that horse singles, and then you have to have good opinions in the other races too. So it it can be tough to beat Santa Anita in that sense. So I actually play more Gulfstream than I do uh, do the California racing circuit. I would imagine just guessing, and this could be way off, I feel it maybe it would be like 80-20 towards Santa Anita, even though I know a lot of people do play Gulfstream, but maybe I would say more than half people who play Gulfstream don't really dig in like you do and know the connections, know the three different surfaces. Like I, I think that's the main fact. And listen, Gulfstream always does well for handle, but the fact that they now have three surfaces, I mean, I'm not saying they're light years ahead of other tracks, but you know, Oakland is what Oakland is. It has one, one surface. It's dirt, no turf racing. Obviously fairgrounds this year got killed with the turf racing with what happened 
with their turf course. The fact that they have three surfaces there, I think is just, if they were having trouble for handle, I would like to know what the handle bump would have looked like for maybe a track that was like not, you know, not in the top three, but maybe like a top 10 track. Because for me, knowing that, oh man, rain's coming, doesn't matter. They're just going to go to the synthetic. It's such a relief to see that now. You nailed it. I mean, if they have a 12 horse field on turf and the rain comes, it's going to be a 10 horse field on synthetic. If you have a 12 horse tur- horse uh, field at, at Santa Anita and the rain comes and it's on turf, you're seeing five or six on synthetic or on the, on the dirt, right? I mean, you see it up at Saratoga all the time. Rain can ruin the Saratoga meet. Yeah. It, it, uh, at, at Gulfstream, you're still getting big fields and, and the tendencies change massively between that turf course and that synthetic course. If you're going two turns, you don't want to touch the horses that are on the lead on synthetic mm-hmm. and you only really want to look at the horses that are on the lead on the turf. Right. So because the, the biases on those two surfaces are so wildly different, it creates a lot of really unique betting angles. One of my favorite betting angles right now is synthetic horses that went to the lead and are switching over to the turf because you're going from a, a specific racetrack where horses struggle to go gate to wire, mm-hmm. rarely do it over that synthetic going two turns and then they're going to a, a surface, the turf at Gulfstream, where you have a massive advantage trying to go gate to wire. So often you'll see a horse that's speed and quit that was a favorite on synthetic that switches over to turf and you're getting 8 to 1, 10 to 1, 12 to 1. And the surface switch alone dictates that they should be lower than those odds. Yeah. I, well, listen, and that's the thing is like when you're watching it, I tell this for people, even if you cannot play the track every day and listen everyone wants to play the track and not look and do the extra hard work i can't tell you how important it is if you're a weekend warrior to at least sit down on your adw every night and just watch the replays or be like hey oh man i'm gonna play on friday saturday look at you know xyz trainer or jockey has won five races this week even if he is 20 percent, okay he's heating up going into the weekend like it matters because now you have to start adding emphasis you know on certain jockeys that maybe weren't as hot during the week. And I think like Equibase and stuff like this, like there's certain, you know, time form has, you know, last 20 races. That's important to know. Or, you know, hot streaks, you know, 20% over the last six racing days. And I feel like stuff like that gets you really intertwined into the racetrack. And then, oh man, that four to one shot that, you know, everyone else is maybe a little bit uneasy about. You're like, man, this guy should be like two to one. And it's so much easier for those hard decisions to become easier decisions or that favorite looks so, so, you know, hard to beat. And you're like, nah, he's like you had said, it's, it's a surface thing. He's going on the lead on synthetic, no shot. Yeah. YouTube has become a great uh, resource as well, because a lot of these racetracks throw their races up on YouTube and you can rip through them uh, and, and watch an entire card's worth of races in 15 minutes without ever having to click multiple buttons. Right. You don't have to go from race to race and hit the play button and, and have it load. It just it, it literally runs race to race right on YouTube. So that's a great uh, tool if you're looking to try and look at replays and not playing a card, but want to make sure you still watch the races to see if there's any biases going on. So I, I want to make sure I'm, I'm, I'm correct on how it was a fifteen hundred dollar tournament, right? Yeah, $1,500 buy-in, 384 people qualified or bought in for the tournament. Uh, Total price pool just over half a million, 183,000 of the winner. Now, I know you fed in for both of your entries. At some point, though, because everyone always says, you know, obviously, if you're going into feeders, if you start doing feeders up to the point of how much the entry is, probably not worth it. At what point is it, okay, I've marked out, I'm going to do 10 feeders for this tournament. If I go over 10, I'm out. Is that kind of how you look at it? Or is it kind of how you feel, you know, day by day, how you're handicapping? It really depends on the tournament. Mm-hmm. Um, I play so many tournaments yes. that I often will just kind of keep feeding until it happens. Cause I, I believe that I have a better shot than one in 10 in the main events. And I'm mm-hmm. like, I, I fed into both of my entries for a total of, I think it was like 246 bucks, something like that. Um, because I won qualifiers into the qualifier, right? So, so horse tourney does a great job of running qualifiers for between 18 and $35 for these tournaments, which then gets you into a main qualifier, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like a mini satellite into the satellite. And a lot of times, and I think, I don't think people realize this, you win your money back <laughs> in those, those smaller ones. Cause if 15 people enter yeah. and you know, it, it pays the top one person, one out of 10, second, third, fourth, and fifth, all get their money back. 
So a lot of times what you, you don't realize is that, you know, you play a bunch of these these qualifiers, but you get your money back as long as you do OK in them. And then when you get a chance to go into the main, if you're if you're lucky enough to get a seat, then, you know, you're in there for, for pretty cheap. And I I was fortunate. I think the, the first weekend and the second weekend they started qualifying for this tournament. I got two seats, which meant I was done with this one and I was able to focus on other other tournaments that I was trying to get into. So uh, really fortunate in this spot. But for me, you know, trying to qualify in is, is the anyway, main way of getting into them. I mean, I've been. Lucky enough to qualify into BCBC the last two years with two entries for for pretty low amounts. Uh, and I had a couple of entries at HC every time through qualifiers, a couple entries entries at uh, Keeneland's Grade One Gamble. So just because of the success I've had, uh, I'm pretty confident that I'll be able to get in for less than the buy-in. Breaking news, everyone! In case no one did realize, Mike is a DJ and just plays every tournament on horse tournaments <laughs> alive. For yeah, DJ. guilty. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, let's talk, talk about just how you kind of go into tournaments. So. Uh, Reading, you know, PTF's book, et cetera, other books that talk about tournaments. You know, you sometimes hear guys, oh, I don't play a horse under 10 to 1. Let's say we have a 10 race tournament. How many horses are you playing that, you know, are 3 to 1 or below between 4 to 1, 9 to 1, and those long shots above 10 and 15 to 1? Like, you kind of break. Obviously, it matters on the race and what you're playing, but I would imagine that you're probably playing maybe two favorites the entire day. I'm trying to avoid horses that are, let's say, sub five and two. Um, uh, so generally, I'm looking for prices bigger than that. And it really depends on what your goal is, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I just mentioned feeders. Well, look, if, if you're playing in a feeder and one in every five qualify, all of a sudden favorites have more value because you just need to beat four other people to get in. Now, I will also play some big shots in those because I want to try and hit one horse and be done. Uh, I was fortunate <laughs> enough to do that this morning where I just I hit one horse and no one else had the horse and I qualified in everything I played. Um, however, you can't count on that happening. You can't count on a 20 to one happening in every 10 race sequence, right? So you have to try and stagger them. Um, so the first thing you should look at is what's the goal, right? Am I playing a a tournament where one in 10 qualify, where one in five qualify? Am I playing a tournament like an NHC qualifier where the top two go through the NHC? Your choices for the prices you play should be vastly different depending on what your goal is for the tournament. Um, if you're trying to be the top two in a 100 person, 150 person tournament, and no one else cashes, you got to take shots. You should be playing 10 to one shots, 15 to one shots, you know, maybe sprinkle in a six or seven to one that you like, but you're going to have to connect on a couple big prices and then have a winner elsewhere to be able to get that first or second spot. If you're playing uh, something where you're, you're trying to qualify through and one out of every 10, your options become a lot wider because stringing together seven to two winners in a 10, if you, let's say you hit three or four, seven to two winners out of 10 races, you're getting through. So you really have to look at what the goal is and then reverse engineer what type of horses you're going to play. And this might come off as a stupid question, but for me, I would say not that I'm a more passive player, but I think some people realistically, when they get into the bigger tournaments and it's like, you know, the most money they've ever won playing the horses is 50th place. I don't think they're aiming for number one. They're like, man, if I can reach 50th or if I can, you know, make the money at the NHC, like that's an accomplishment. And then everything else on top of that is gravy. I'm, I mean, I would imagine that that's, I'm not going to say it's 50-50 with the field, but I would say that probably 15 to 20% of a field goes in knowing that they're going to win these two-day big type tournaments like this, not compared to like, you know, the single one-day $15 tournament eight races at Laurel type things like that. What do you kind of feel about that? Do you kind of feel like when you're looking and seeing how people are playing, what horses are playing that some people are just trying to chip up and get to that, you know, milestone number. And then, you know, not that they're happy with that, but a lot of them aren't trying to win per se. I I agree. <laughs> I think you see that in, in, uh, in a lot of big tournaments where you see people who are happy to be there um, and not necessarily trying to win the tournament, uh, especially toward the late later ends of this, the tournament where people are content with, with finishing, you know, 18th, 20th, mm-hmm. 22nd. This one paid 28 spots um, versus trying to take the shot to win it. Uh, I think if you want to win these tournaments, you have to look at this as, you know, found money in a way where you're just willing to take chances. You have to be okay with coming home with $0 if you want to be able to come home with a big prize. And, you know, I, you only get so many chances in life to make $200,000 in a horse tournament in a day. So in my mind, you take your chance, right? You take the shot, um, especially since the people that you're talking about probably didn't buy in. They probably f- fed into it, right? Mm-hmm. 
they they got in there for let's say 200 bucks and, and they have a shot at, at winning 200,000 you in my mind you got to take the shot now if you don't play these every day when I, I play tournaments every day if you're not playing then I, I can understand the spot where hey I'm happy finishing 17th and, and collecting 4500 bucks um but that's also why I think these are so valuable because you have some people playing that style and they're not as much of a threat to win. They could have a great day and win the tournament. Don't get me wrong, but they're, they're not, not as big of a threat as someone who is trying to win the tournament. I think you brought up a huge point there too. You're playing tournaments every single day compared to people who might be playing a tournament, maybe once a week, maybe just on the weekends or, or you know, feeding into a couple you're playing the Monday series through the Sunday <laughs> series and, parks, and, baby. And, 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 and listen, I think, though, and it's the same thing like when we talk about just sports in general or in poker. However many times you get the same type of hand, and you're like, okay, I'm in the same situation I was in, you know, last month in this poker hand. It's here again. Maybe it's a different opponent, but you don't have the same type of read. It's just not analysis by paralysis. But if you keep ending up in the same situation, like, okay, I'm in third, top two make the money. It's a maiden claiming race. I kind of have an idea of what the top two are going to pick. I need to pick something else. These type of horses always seem to win these races. Then all of a sudden, oh, look, you chipped up in the second and you make money. Whereas a normal person might just take the favorite and try and make that extra four or five bucks to, to get in. And they just lose because they're just not used to the game theory and not used to being in that situation multiple times every day, 200 days a year. It's a huge advantage. I mean, just to, to be in the end game, uh, to have played the end game multiple times and, and kind of understand what people are going to do in specific situations allows you to make sure you have live horses um, and that you can win the tournament with the specific horses that you're picking. And well, the last race, we'll talk quite a bit about that because I, I had a subset of horses, depending on where I was, that I was going to pick from, right? You know, if you're in the top five, the, this is the horse I'm most likely going to pick, but these are the other possible options. And a lot of people don't have that experience. So they've, they've never sat in that spot and made a wrong decision to learn from. And, and, you know, I've made wrong decisions and that's how you kind of realize, okay, this is what I expect. And one thing I would say is like, if you're interested in playing these tournaments, but your bankroll doesn't allow it right now, or you don't qualify in pay attention to the last five races in the tournament. Anyway, mm-hmm. think about, okay, what would I do if I was in first, if I was in second, if I was in third, you know, how would I handle this, this, this end game result? And like the, how would I play these last five races to try and go from fifth to first, to try and go from seventh to first. Right. Um, and, and what are other people doing? Can I predict the horses that they're going to select to give myself a better chance to be able to move up and to be able to understand what horses are live? I, I think too, and we're about to get into these races. End game is so important, whether it comes down to anything you do competitively sports, a poker tournament, horse racing tournament, you know, pick fives, picks, just handicapping in general. When you get to, you know, I'm going to make a pick five ticket. And yes, there's a lot of math that goes into it. But like when you're trying to figure out, you know, obviously everyone wants to survive the first race. and They want to win the last race. And for me, when I'm playing those multi-leg tickets, it's the middle legs that I kind of find the most value in because and the first leg. But that's beside the point, because everyone's trying to survive and everyone has a different idea of what they want to do. How you play the end game really, I think, takes what people say, you know, the Hall of Fame players are compared to just maybe the very good players in this game. Well, and the beauty with these live tournaments is that you understand what the end game is going to be before it starts. I mean, one thing that I do in live tournaments, I handicap the last race first and go back to the first race because, I mean, this this last five at San Diego is a great example. The fifth race seemed pretty open. The sixth race had an even money Baffert horse that was likely going to win. So you're not going to make up much ground there. The seventh race was going to have a favorite, but then a very muddy board, like between, you know, a lot of horses between three to one and six to one. Mm -hmm. The eighth race was going to have a six to five shot, even money shot that was likely to win. And the ninth race was wide open. So you have one chaos race where you can look for a bomb. You can make up ground, but you want to have as many options as possible going into that last race. And so you have to realize you're only going to chip up a little bit in those other races. And so it's how can I get myself as close to possible, close to the leader as possible so that I have as many options as possible in the last race, many horse options, horses that I can play to still win in that last race to try and take over the top spot. Couldn't agree more with that. Let's jump into these races. We're going to start with race number seven from Santa Anita. Starter allowance, 50,000, six furlongs on the turf. 
Some questions for you, Mike. How are you with these starter allowance races? Are they some of your favorite races to handicap? Some of your least favorite? Where were you in the tournament at this point? And what was your kind of strategy going into this? So star allowances, uh, I think, are interesting. You can often get some some prices in star allowances because you have horses jumping up and dropping down in class that can, mm-hmm. can get confusing. So you have to kind of find comp races that fit with these specific horses. They have to, you know, have either been in a, a claimer or or had to have fit the conditions, which allows more a variety of horses in there, right? But at some point, they had to find a way to get in there. So I, I like these races because I think it induces, you know, handicapping chaos, where it's you got a lot of different things to look at that you have to purse through. Um, at this point in the tournament, I was in fourth place. I was uh, $40 behind the leader. Um, the previous race was actually big for me. I jumped up from from seventh place to fourth place with a $4 place price, which was was key because it got me in front of people to allow me to start trying to chip away, but also not have to worry about the people behind me as long as I could pick winners. Uh, this specific race I thought was pretty interesting. Um, you've got Lone Speed on the three-horse Conk Daddy, who I thought was going to definitely be played by some people. It was coming out of a claiming uh, race where, where it got an 85 buyer, but was a, clearly a career best buyer going five and a half furlongs. Had never tr- had tried the six and a half furlong distance once and struggled at Santa Anita. But I assumed that some people were going to play that. That was your morning line favorite. The horse that was going to take money was the six Daniels Magic, just because of the consistency. Mm-hmm. Uh, had been in this this level of race four times in a row, had a win, um, and has never missed the Superfecta in those four races. So you know Daniels Magic was going to take money there. To me, this one was kind of a wide open race. Um, when I was looking at this, my goal here was to just pick the winner. Uh, the, the only real long shot was the five four Santa's Cruiser, which was twelve to one on the morning line. I had no interest in, so I knew I did not want to take a shot here. Uh, um, so I I kind of threw out the six out of the out of the uh, right out of the bat because the six horse to me was too short of a price at at you know dollar ninety to one, um, and, and I liked the three but I had distance concerns about the three. So I really honed in on the one and the two. Um, the one horse for giving spirit, Peter Miller trainee, had never been in this specific level. Had been running against state breads, but if you go back to three back going six furlongs at Santa Anita, had the same bug jockey who has really been picking it up lately and riding very well. Uh, got a 90 buyer, was able to win going six furlongs at Santa Anita. And then uh, the two horse who was cutting back in distance, but had been effective at this level. And if you go back to the last time to spring at this level, ran a good third at 20 to one. So I, I thought those were kind of the two horses that I was in between from a tournament perspective to try and, you know, make up as much ground as possible. And you brought up such a great point about just the way the board looked. Okay. So in this race, and this is why this might be one of my favorite tournament type of races, one long shot, one short price horse. If you don't want to go for the bomb, that's fine. If you don't want to play chalk, okay, that leaves you with one, two, three, four, five horses instead of seven. You're chipping away. You still have five horses to try and pick through. I was all about the one in this race. Like you had said, like one thing that uh, in a lot of Kramer books that you listen to and, you know, Quinn books, they say if the horses ran well at the same distance with the same jockey and it pretty much just fits like a puzzle piece, they're probably going to run like that again. And if you look through, had much better races sprinting. The last race routing was okay, 68, 7 by 7 It's not great, and they went off the favorite the last two races. But we're finally getting back to the right kind of spot. And it's it's one of those things where everyone sees, oh, my God, Pratt jumps on, so they have to jump on it. Sometimes, you know, leading riders are not what the horse needs, and they need the more, you know, younger rider who, uh, listen, now you have more mistakes that can get made. But I thought Forgiving Spirit here off of a turn back, off races with the 90, had an 81 back with Ruben Alvarado as the, as the trainer. Just fits so well here. It's such a good value price of almost 4-1. to one. Daniel's Magic is going to run it was, is going to run some type of 80 in this race. That's the only thing that I thought. It's going to run 8. So that puts me now at can Forgiving Spirit, you know, get back to that 90 or at least improve off these last two, which I thought they could. And for me in this race, the race just kind of picked itself. I didn't like any of the other ones. King Apollo, no. Stotland for me was just hard because I had been in so many route races and sometimes I feel like these struggle unless if it's, you know, going down the hill. Six furlongs for me was just kind of at the price. I was willing to take a pass here on out of all the six to ones. Forgiving spirit to me at almost four to one just felt like the right one. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think one thing that a lot of times people struggle with is, is when there's lone speed but you think the speed's going to stop. 
the second fastest horse is a great horse to have. <laughs> um, and, and so you want that trip where you're able to break well, sit right behind the speed, tilt out to the two path and get first run on a horse that's most likely going to quit and make everyone else catch you. It's a really comfortable trip. It's a, mm-hmm. for a bug jockey, it's an easy trip to run too. Cause you just have to get out of the gate, get behind the speed, tilt outside. It's, it's not like you're making decisions on, do I go inside? Do I go outside? How do I handle the turn? You know, do I need to go split these horses? It's, it's one decision. It's, it's get behind and then make the move at the right time. So for me, the bug jockey is an advantage in that spot because you're getting the seven pound weight break with a horse that's clearly the second fastest in the race and should be sitting in an easy second trip and be able to wheel wide. The price went down to seven to two late, but I ended up going with the one forgiving spirit consensus pick for giving spirit let's see how we can start off this end game right now they're off conk daddy gets the first call out of the gate between rivals santa cruiser is up close here's forgiving spirit in the orange colors moving up to claim second then it's daniel's magic red cap one from the outside savile row extreme outside down at the rail, Stotland is about four lengths off the speed. King Apollo steadying in traffic. It's Conk Daddy with a clear-cut lead past the half-mile pole. A length and a half to Daniel's Magic and Forgiving Spirit sharing second. Santa Cruisers between those two, followed by Stotland, King Apollo, and Savile Row outside of them. Conk Daddy, Forgiving Spirit, puts the pressure on second. A length back to Daniel's Magic, now two behind in third. King Apollo gets a little bit of breathing room in fourth, followed by Stotland at the rail, Santa Cruiser and Savile Row there at the top of the stretch, and it's Conk Daddy and Forgiving Spirit. Forgiving Spirit runs right on by, three lengths back. Between rivals, King Apollo is finishing nicely and trying to get to Forgiving Spirit, but Forgiving Spirit still has plenty left, and Forgiving Spirit will win it by a length. And Forgiving Spirit does get the job done. 81, the winning buyer. 980, the winning mutual. That's how we like to start the end game. Daniel's Magic runs third with a 76 buyer, so Tommy declined a little bit off that sub two to one. King Apollo running second off a nice little 78 there at six to one. But like you had said, when in this type of race, when there's four or five value horses, one long shot, one chalk, if you can find the winner, you're gonna really jump up the jump up the rankings. Yeah, and then this was a spot where I didn't make up any ground on the people in front of me. Um, the second place person picked Forgiving Spirit as well. I thought that was the correct pick. They pulled within $4 a liter. Uh, third place had the four King Apollo, got good place money there. I stayed in fourth, but instead of being $40 back, I was now $25 back. Um, and that that makes a huge difference because I mentioned it's all about this last race and getting to the point where you know, you you can either take a shot in the second to last, and we'll talk about that in a second here, or you can try and play 100% for that last race. Being $25 back opens up eight to one. Nine to one is definitely going to win it for you. Whereas if you're further back, you got to go for that 12, 15 to one shot. And that's a lot harder to pick and a lot less likely to get the win home. So uh, for me, it was all about closing the gap on the leader. I would have loved to pass people, obviously, but being able to close that gap was big. I know we're keeping this mostly tournament centric, but just to go back and just kind of recap this race real quick. I thought Daniel's Magic at sub two to one. These are the type of horses whether you're playing multis, exactas, etc. This is a horse that you just have to try to avoid and just try to beat over the long term. As a beginning player, it's so hard when you watch four or five of these win, and you're just like, man, I can't play against these types. But when they lose ninety five times after that, that these are the type of horses that you're going to make your money off of. This one has raced four times at this level, is competitive enough, but the buyer didn't improve. And listen, this one's five years old probably doesn't have much left in the tank to improve the buyer going up or down. Ian Hardy was also 0 for 7 so far to start the meet. Uh, for me in this race, forgiving spirit, having better back numbers, having raced at this exact type of level with this jockey, I, I think overall, Conch Daddy, like you had said, was lone speed, but where the heck did that 85 come from? I mean, I mean, for both of those types, Daniel's Magic probably runs third due to her due to the class. Conch Daddy probably needs a better pace scenario to improve on this type of level. Probably doesn't want six furlongs either. I mean, that's that 85 uh, came at six furlongs and it had a three length lead and then ended up winning by a length and a half. So it's already, already quitting off it. If you go back, went six over the Santa Anita turf, uh, was close to the lead, ended up 10 lengths off late in that race. Go back again, six, six furlongs to Santa Anita, made the lead, was up, was second, and then ended up three lengths back in fifth. I mean, just just can't handle that that extra half furlong at five and a half to six. So 
that's the type of horse you want to try and play against, um, especially with that career best buyer last time out, first time against winners in that race, now stretching out to the extra half furlong. It was just a lot. And then you look at the six. I mean, I think you made a great point. This is a five-year-old in the last four races. The buyer's been 81, 80, 80, 81. <laughs> if you're expecting that horse to jump up to an 86, you got to explain why. And I, I can't come up with a reason. I can't either. Um, and so it's tough to say, okay, he's going to run higher than an 81 buyer, right? And improve that number in some way. And the races that this horse has won have been paces set up, pace setups in front of it. Yep. This was not going to be that. You had a lone leader and you had only really one horse that was going to try and chase. And that was the one horse who ended up getting that exact trip we talked about, where was able to sit too wide, uh, broke directly behind the three, got into the two path, and then said, come get me. And, and no one could. Let's move on to the next race here. Race over eight for Santania, optional 50 and one X six furlongs on the dirt. Now tough race for me. I ended up with the chalk, a long shot and a value type horse. What did you kind of think of in this race? This is a tough race. Um, American Lily, the seven horse is clearly the best horse in the race mm -hmm. uh, in my mind. It, well, I shouldn't say that the one horse uh, Manarelli was also a horse that I thought was, was, deserving to be bet coming out of the grade three los flores ran a really good race was 26 to one on that day and 32 to one the day the, the race prior four to one on the morning lines the price a little short compared to the last two but clearly coming out of the best race ran well in that race um and, and was able to make the lead or, or actually fight for the lead and, and hang on a repeat of that effort was probably good enough to be a, a contender here. But the problem for Manarelli is that there was other speed signed on. The, the two horse, two bossy, wanted to show some speed. The three horse, Prince, Princess Adelaide, uh, had some quite a bit of speed. The seven American Lily had been forwardly placed and was you're going to be your favorite in this spot. It ended up going off at six to five. So there's a lot of speed in this spot. Um, the one in the seven seemed like the class. The seven had been able to win from just off the pace when attending to the lead. So I thought the seven was clearly the best horse. Um, it's one of those where, you know, if, if you tell me who am I going to pick to win, I pick the seven, but in a tournament where I was sitting, which was 15 bucks back with three people in front of me and the top two, just with $2 and change separating them, I was almost positive one, if not both of the top two are going to take the seven. Mm -hmm. Um, and in that case, if, if they both take the seven and I take the seven, I don't make up any ground and I don't have any chance to really pass the person in front of me for third either. So the seven kind of got thrown out from a tournament perspective right out of the gate. We mentioned all the speed in here with the one, two, the three, and the seven. That meant I really went to the four, five, or the eight as the horse that I thought was the play because I wanted to try and take a horse that was going to try and rally into that speed and hopefully pick up some pieces here. Um, this was, to me, one of the tougher tournament races because I, I could make a case for a lot of the horses in here. And especially when that three floats up to eight to one, all of a sudden you, you could make a little better case for the three as well versus that four to one morning line. I ended up between the five and the eight. Uh, lasting love, the five daughter of Cupid. Cupid stands for five thousand. She sold for four hundred and forty thousand. First race was a maiden 50. She looked awesome in that race at Los Alamitos and nearest and dearest ran third in that race. who came back and looked good to win as well. The eight horse, uh, Ute Your Honor, uh, for Serin and uh, DeSormo, coming out of a really nice claiming race. Um, so both of these are jumping up in class, but offering some type of price, and both have won from off the lead. So those are the two that I, I kind of came down to from a tournament perspective. I took a little bit of a shot here. I felt like the five horse was going to be unused in the tournament. Um, and I was right. <laughs> Fortunately, the five didn't. Well, we'll get to the what did later. But uh, I wanted to have a horse where I thought I could take the lead going into the last race. And the five was on the board um, at, a, at a pretty nice price when they actually broke from the gate, almost 10 to 1, 9.7 to 1. So I, I thought that that taking a chance of the horse who was jumping up in class, but just a second career start where you have a logical improvement angle and you have a pace set up to run into, was the right horse to go with because of the lack of use in the tournament. And you make such a good point. If you have the only horse, you, like you had said, I don't know if we talked about that on air or off air, but this, this morning you played a horse, only horse in the race, bang, you have it. You just got to skip the rest of your day with the tournament because you'd already won that entry. And, and for me, you, your honor was, was the one value horse I had. Vladimir Sorinda is so good off these types of layoffs, but I ended up going to bowl of cherries. I just think, when you claim horses out of low sal and you know the spot you want, and it's jumping up in class like it was at Santa Anita for 28000 and you win, yes, it's hard to do double jump ups, but this one had had some success at Santa Anita, was okay at the distance, four or five in the money. 
and I was getting to be the second longest shot, and I didn't like too bossy. So for me, Bowl of Cherries here is the one that I want to have, knowing with all this pace set up like we had said, this one's coming from off of it. Also knowing that at least if I get second place money, everyone else might have it. But if American Lily wins, maybe for at the price, I'm at least either you know equaling out their win ratio or I'm making a dollar or two more. And we all know how many times we've watched in a tournament how much 10 cents matters, let alone $2. And she's faced some pretty good horses in the past as well. Um, so I, I, Bola Cherries is one of those where it, since she came onto the dirt, she's been running well. You mentioned his one at San Diego twice already, likes the distance, one for five for the distance. You could definitely make a case for the four as well at a price. And, and if you're looking for a closer, the four definitely fits the bill. Bowl of cherries for myself. Lasting love as the pick for Mike. Let's see where we end up after this second part of the end game right now. They're off. Slow start for Lasting Love. Slight bobble for American Lily, who comes out in second as Princess Adelaide pulls clear a length and a half while drifting out. Manarelli comes through along the rail to challenge, and American Lily is three off the pace in third. They're followed by two bossy down at the rail, fourth and four lengths off the dueling leaders. Bowl of Cherries is next. Ute Your Honor and another three to Lasting Love. They move to the far turn, and it's Manarelli at the rail. Princess Adelaide pressing from second. Two bossy coming after the top pair, third. Then comes American Lily. Ute Your Honor outside of that pair. Bowl of Cherries is just behind this group. Four lengths off the lead and two in front of Lasting Love. They have a quarter of a mile to go, and American Lily makes a wide bid to challenge Princess Adelaide for the lead. Down on the inside, Manarelli fights on, and they're followed by two bossy. Son of the track, Bowl of Cherries is coming nicely past the eighth pole. And American Lily rests a narrow lead from Princess Adelaide, who fights her to the wire. It's American Lily just in front, and American Lily prevails. And American Lily did get the job done as the favorite. 81, the winning buyer, 440. The winning mutual bowl of cherries runs third for me, but unfortunately in tournaments, first and second only, so no dough for me. Lasting love, listen, Mike, there was a reason that horse was the only one that you had picked. Uh, running dead last, unfortunately, but again, you know, when you're taking horses like that, I would much rather in a tournament be the only one on a specific horse, 10 out of 10 races, than be jammed up with 35 million other people on the favorite. What's well, a funny thing too, I stabled her up out, out of this race. So I'm probably going to bet Lasting Love back at some point. She didn't break very well um, and showed a little interest in the turn. And I, when Callahan places horses like this, he thinks they're pretty good. I thought this was a pretty aggressive placement. So I, I'm going to give her another shot back and maybe I'm a sucker for that. But I, I think that there's more talent there than necessarily what we saw on this day. So I, I don't mind the pick even afterward. I wish she broke a little better so we'd have a little better idea of how good she was. Um, but uh, lasting love and I, I was the only one in the top five would have taken over the lead pretty handily if she had been able to get the job done here so i don't mind the tournament style and it's one i'm, I'm interested a little bit in playing back american lily ran really well here um and you got to give props uh to the leader as well who instead of taking american lily and the, the person who was in second uh greg uh did take american lily he went with the three horse um which was a huge play in the long run mm -hmm. with princess adelaide and got place money for that which definitely mattered in the end I think, too, when you look at this horse, and, and listen, there's there's two spots here. Princess Adelaide is coming out of a synthetic race, still needs to improve a little bit. American Lily is coming off of a turf race that you know is not the right surface and a bullet work. You're getting sub, you know, two to one compared to eight to one. I think at eight to one, Princess Adelaide is probably the right type of play in this spot. At four to one, you're probably better off taking the favorite. But obviously, these two are a class above the rest, 81, 80 for them. Bowl of Cherries back down there with a 73. So I, I think in this race, if you had one of those two horses, you can feel pretty good about your handicap on this race. Yeah, 100%. And this is this is where that that end game is interesting as well, because for Greg, who who was ends up in was in second going into the race and is second coming out of the race, uh, if Princess Adelaide does not place, Greg takes the lead um, by, what is it, about four bucks going into the last race as well. So uh, an example of where using a six to five favorite can be incredibly advantageous. If if that horse wins, then then Greg is in a great spot going into the last race up 250-380 to 250-70. Um, in this case, David picked Princess Adelaide and was able to move forward with it. And that place money made a huge difference because he goes into the last of the lead and it gives him a lot more options from a final race perspective.
Let's move on to the final race. Race number nine, maiden special weight, six furlongs back on the turf. Bunch of first-time stars in here, a couple with some experience. How did we finish up this tournament, Mike? This was this was a really fun race to end with. I mean, I mentioned before, I, I kind of work backwards on these live tournaments. I knew this was a race where I was willing to take a shot. I thought you could make a case for the two-horse, uh, Fayette Fox, who was 12 to 1, the three, who was 6 to 1 on the line, not now, the four, A.G. Bullet, who was 21 on the morning line. I assume the five, Ruby Dell, was going to get bet 72 on the morning line, but there was a ton of buzz about this $1.2 million purchase. The seven horse, who was six to one in the morning line, made sense. The nine, who was eight to one. The ten, who was four to one. They, there was a, just a lot of horses that you could play here, depending on where you were in the tournament. Um, I was twenty one dollars back at this point, sitting in fourth place. I the the odds board kind of made me narrowed me down to three different horses: uh, the four ag ag bullet, the nine mary mount or mount mary, and the ten marina's tina, who are all between uh, anywhere from seven to one to twelve to one, depending on when you looked at the board. All three of those prices would get the job done for me. I was looking for someone who was eight to one or higher, ideally, um, but all of them fluctuated between those. When it came down to it, you know, when I looked at the race prior, the four AG bullet was the horse that I wanted to play if I thought that I was going to be way back the 21 morning line. Mm -hmm. The horse took a ton of money, was sitting at 11 to 1, 12 to 1 for the most of the time prior to the race, was 10 to 1 in the doubles, 12 to 1 in the pick fours. So that was the price that would definitely get me home if we got that 10 to 12 to 1. And when you look at this horse, this is the type of long shot I'm really interested in. So it's it's got a turf pedigree, turf sprinting pedigree, sold for $220,000. Horse debuts at Del Mar, shows speed, chases two horses that both go on to win their next start um, and, and faded back after chasing those two. Now we're switching distances here as we're, we're going from six to six and a half. But the only horse really that has any experience that's shown speed. So for me, I thought the four had a very good chance of getting the lead um, and taking this field gate to wire. The 10 horse is a little interesting. It's D'Amato with a European horse coming over. He's 21% first time North America. Rispoli rides for him. The two of them teamed up at 32% here in, in Southern California. And then you got the nine Mount Mary that I mentioned, Callahan again, got the Tory up. The two of them have clicked off very well. It's a horse that ran well at a mile, but cutting back to six and a half on the turf, uh, it could prove to be a positive for Mount Mary. For me, and this is just such a, not an easy race, obviously, but when you're looking throughout it, horses like Ruby Nell, I don't like horses. Any, I, I used to like horses with these little blowouts right before the race. I don't like it anymore, especially the fact that this one's been in the gate for a training about 12 to 15 times already. <laughs> um, I I want to take a, sp a spot like you had and just the motto with this European shipper, I'm sure a couple of others would be on it, but there's also people who are trying to guard their own. You know, this is what's so good about these last type of races. You're worried about getting up to first. These other guys worry about three or four dollar differences. So, oh, I can pick the favorite. And if I make three extra dollars and their horse misses, you know, I protect my spotter. If this horse runs second and I win, doesn't matter because I still contain the lead. I wanted this type of horse at four to one. AJ Bullet to go from 20 to one down to six to one. I mean, oh my God, like just steam galore on this one. So it had to be a little bit dangerous there as well. Ruby Nell, the other one, like I had said, so many gate works, super scary. I thought about eight to one was right about where this horse needed to be. And like you said, was also one of them on your short list as well. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I mean, when you look at the, 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 so this is the game theory part behind it, right? The first place is sitting $3 in front of second place. 90% of the time, depending on who's playing in those spots, you're going to see the favorite and the second favorite chosen in those two spots. So for me sitting in fourth, I assume that, that the five and the 11 are covered in front of me. And that's great. I mean, that's great for me. I'd much rather have two people if I'm in fourth that are vying for first because it eliminates the favorites who I wasn't going to play anyway. And it also minimizes their upside from a place perspective uh, because the horses that they're playing are going to have a larger percentage of the place pool. So I love seeing both the five and 11. I love seeing two people close fighting for that. The third place person wasn't that far behind either. Um, so third place was sitting uh, just $12 back. So Greg in third could really pick anyone that he wanted there. Uh, I'm sorry, George in third could really pick anyone that he wanted there outside. That was four to one or higher. And you're getting that on every horse outside those two. I thought Greg was going to play the 10. So for me, the 10 got bumped out because of that. I thought that was the third logical horse okay. that if you are just blindly 
handicapping the race, I, I thought a lot of people would pick the 10 as the third horse. So I knocked the, the 10 out there. I ended up playing AG Bullet. I felt AG Bullet was the right horse from a price perspective. I mentioned, you know, obviously we'll talk about the off odds in a second here. Um, that horse was 10 to 1 to 12 to 1 in every single pool. And if you're playing these tournaments, you have to be looking at the will pays and pricing your horses based off of that. And AG Bullet was between, like I said, 10 to 12 and every single double pick three, pick four and pick five. So I, I was expecting between 10 to 12 to 1 on AG Bullet, which gets the job done. I legitimately like the horse, which helps out a lot there if it's one on your short list. Um, and I thought that I wouldn't have anyone in front of me pick it. I felt like it was a unique enough horse that, you know, based on who David, Greg, and George have been picking in the tournament, and you can look back at who they picked and you can see exactly the style of horses they're looking at. I felt like AG Silver was a live horse for me. So if as long as I got those odds that I needed, I thought I could get the win with AG Silver. So I, I landed on that. I want speed on Sanity's turf. I thought I had a shot at getting lone speed here. I get a horse that has experience. It gets a lot of first-time starters. Um, and I, I feel like I already know two of the three horses that are going to be selected in front of me. So going into this, hoping I get 10 to 1, hoping AG Spirit or AG uh, Bullet. AG Bullet, I'm sorry, would be live. AG Bullet for Mike. Marina's Tina for me. Let's see who gets it done in the nightcap right now. AG Bullet is very fast away from the gate. Lunar Impact with the yellow cap racing in between horses close up. And Gila is just outside of that pair. Gila puts her head in front now. Then it's Mount Mary, a close up fourth. Far outside, playlist fifth, about four lengths off the leader. Then comes Irish Patsy. Rivka is racing in mid-pack and in a touch of traffic at this stage. Fayette Fox on the inside of Marina's Tina. And then it's another length and a half back to Ruby Nell. And at the back of the field, not now. Seven lengths covers them, fairly compact into the turn. A.G. Bullet is the leader. Has it by two lengths now. Playlist on the outside, moving into second. Irish Patsy is down at the rail as Mount Mary is dropping back around the far turn. Marina's Tina picking up a little bit of momentum. Ruby Nell switches to the far outside with the orange cap. There's a furlong left to go. And the lead still belongs to A.G. Bullet. In fact, she has widened a six-length lead. Ruby Nell comes out of the pack in the center of the course, moving into second late. But it's all A.G. Bullet and Joe Bravo just trouncing the competition. One. And A.G. Bullet does get the job done. 1480, the winning mutual. 80, the winning buyer. Obviously, 1480, not as big as 10 or 12 to 1. If there's ever a reason, and I'm mad now for you, that they should <laughs> lock the odds at a minute to post. I mean, this costs you how much differential? $110,000. For everyone who misses a pick six by a nose, can't feel as bad as that. I mean, and did the odds change at least before they got out of the gate? Or was it like, oh, they broke, and then you saw six to one? Yeah, AG Bullet loaded at 11 to one. And broke at six to one. <laughs> so it was literally the last flash. And uh, everyone knocks CAWs, all that jazz. I actually had a buddy text me and tell me the trainer put 10 grand on the horse to win right before the gate broke open. So that might have been the flip. It might not have been a CAW. Um, but look, this is this is kind of it's a weird feeling because I, I literally won fifty thousand dollars in that race. I moved up from fourth to second, and I also feel like I lost one hundred and ten thousand dollars on the same race. Uh so I walked downstairs and I, I looked at my wife. She's like, did you win? And I'm like, sort of, <laughs> you know, it's, it's one of those, those very, you know, odd moments where you outside of poker and in a major tournament where you get sucked out and, and, you know, the pay jumps are huge. Mm -hmm. There's really no other way to explain how you can feel in that, that spot. Um, and to me, it's not, I don't know. It's hard to, it's it, like I said, it's tough to explain because I, I don't, I'm not that upset about the odds drop because I have no control over that. Yes. I have no control that the, the winner picked Ruby Nell and that horse placed. And that also cost the win. I had to pick the horse I thought was going to win. That would, should be the right price based on will pace. And I did that. So, for, so from my perspective, it's like, look, sometimes you just get unlucky. And this is kind of when your ace King loses ace queen in a poker tournament. You just got unlucky. Um, and I, when I look back at the tournament, I'm more upset at the fact that in the fifth to last race, I switched off the one who ended up winning at nine to five and went for the seven at seven to one because I wanted to try and make a bigger move there. Whereas if I had just stuck with that one, the odds drop would have been 
wouldn't have mattered. Yeah. Um, so that I can control. I can look back at my play and, and I can look back at each race and the horses I selected and I can control who I selected and learn from that. In this case, it was just one of those situations where I can't control that the horse drops from 11 to 1 to 6 to 1. Uh, the Will Pays said that it wasn't going to do that. Um, and I can't control who the, the leader picks in, in this sense and that that horse runs for second. So I learned a long time ago, it's not worth getting upset over things you can't control. Worry about the stuff you can and try and get better at that. And so that that was kind of my takeaway from this is I got to look back and try and figure out where I could have picked up that $3, what I could have done differently so that the odds drop didn't matter. Last question before we let you go. Do you feel that if you had picked that horse four or five races back, do you still end up on AG Bolt here? Or maybe does that change your idea? Because, I mean, AG Bolt at the price of 10, 12 to 1, I think it's still a solid price, but obviously being four or five dollars closer matters. It does. Um, I never would have been on the five or the 11, no matter what place I was in. Okay. So for me, that kind of changes it a little bit. I would have been between most likely the four and the 10 had I been in the lead. Um, and I probably would have ended up on the four because one thing that that a key part of endgame is also understanding who else is going to chase you. Right. I didn't like the five at all. You mentioned the gate works. Anytime a horse works six times out of the gate. <laughs> And is in a turf sprint, I want no part of that horse because that means they're having trouble out of the gate. That's mm-hmm. why you work six times out of the gate. You don't do it because you just want to get more practice. No, you're, you're doing it because the horse isn't breaking. Um, and the 11, I had no interest in at all. I, I, the post is terrible at Santa Anita going six and a half. It's a horse, you know, it, Wesley Ward, third time, switching tracks. They just, no thanks. It's just not one I'm going to ever play. So I was never playing the five or 11, irregardless of what place I was in. Um, the four horse was the horse I pegged when I looked at the race originally. So I, it probably would have taken quite a bit to get me off the four because when it's that tight, when I I think it was literally 36 people were within a capper of, of winning the race, Mm -hmm. eight or nine different horses are the ones you're trying to block. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. The favorite is the most likely horse to win. But in this case, I thought both of the two favorites were flawed. So I would have ended up on the four of the 10 had I been in first or second. Um, and I would like to think it still would have been the four. I don't know for sure. Uh, but I, I feel like the four horse was screaming to be played there. And, and with the number of people that are so close, and if you look at the final leaderboard, I, I think it's like eight of the top 10 or seven of the top 10 had the four horse. It's just one that you kind of know people are going to cover. And so I'm, I'm willing to be more aggressive there and play a price versus playing a favorite, especially if I don't like either favorite and I like the price. Always good to play devil's advocate. Always good to go back and look at races. Always good to talk tournaments with my man, Mike Samich. Mike, thank you so much for coming on. Where can people find you to talk more about tournaments, horse racing, everything going on in that world? Yeah, of course. Easiest place to find me is at uh, Samobomb18 on Twitter. You can find me over at racingdudes.com. Do uh, weekly previews. Uh, do a Dudes Who Bet Daily, which is a sports and horse betting show, uh, Wednesday through Sunday at noon Eastern. Do uh, weekly race previews for them, as well as a handicap for the Samobombs. I'll be on ABR Live this weekend over at Pegasus. So I'll be down at Gulfstream. If anyone's down there, hit me up on Twitter. Love to say hi. Uh, doing a live show there starting at 3.30. I'll be on Racing Dudes Live Show this weekend. And you can catch me on Lombardi Line talking uh, NFL and sports betting every Thursday at uh, 1.15 Eastern as well. He's a busy man, folks. Thank you, Mike, so much for taking time to spend with us here on Redboard Rewind. Of course, Spencer. Thanks for having me. I want to thank everyone who listens to this show and the rest of the shows on the My Media Network. Also, want to thank my special guest, Mike Samich, for coming around and having a more tournament-centric podcast today. This show has been a production of In the Money Media. In the Money Media's president is Peter Thomas Pornatel. Our chief creative officer is Jonathan Kinchin. And our In the Money Media business manager is Drew Coatney. I'm Spencer Luganbuehl. We will see you next time.